when it happens, when it happens, your pace slows drastically and your legs start to feel like lead weights. And all sensation departs from your feet. And worst of all, foggy doubt begins to swirl around your head. Will I or won't I finish? Now, athletes call this phenomenon hitting the wall. And it occurs after the start of the race, but some way before the conclusion succeeding in the race, usually round about the 20-mile mark during the struggling phase. And while some athletes pull through this point, a significant number of others, sadly, are forced to pull out of the race and park themselves at the side of the road. Probably, in most cases, not to continue. Now, we imagine this to be a miserable moment for any athlete to have come so far and yet to have been stopped in their tracks, hitting the wall. However, let me suggest this morning that it is beyond sad. Indeed, it is tragic When in the Christian race, and in the marathon that is the Christian life, a brother or a sister in Christ hits the wall and finds themselves both down and out. That's a tragic situation. And you know, sooner or later, if you're a Christian long enough, it is a stark possibility that it will happen to you. Maybe you know because you've been there. Perhaps some of you are there this morning. Or very likely you've at least sat beside another flagging person in the race, another believer who was ready to quit, ready to hang up their running shoes. Now the question I want to ask this morning is very simple. With such a a real and sober reality before us. What would God say to you in such a situation? Does God, in fact, have anything to say to encourage you as you are slumped by the side of the road to get you back on track? Or perhaps just to change the picture a little bit, what might God say also through you to another individual, a friend who is struggling in the race. Maybe you've been there before and you've not known what to say in that situation. Well, you know, thankfully, God has something to say on both counts today. And in fact, we have in the New Testament a historical record of God's encouraging word to flagging runners. It is found in the New Testament letter of Hebrews. And Hebrews is really God's encouraging word to dejected runners. Runners who have hit the wall, so to speak. And yet I hope we will see this morning that this encouraging word 
is also an exceptionally surprising word. A counterintuitive encouragement from the Lord. So, Hebrews chapter 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12 for a surprising word of encouragement. And you will need a Bible open uh, in front of you today to guarantee that God is speaking. If I'm indeed expounding this text, and we're picking up where Peter left off last week. He covered verses 1 to 3, and we're coming to verse 4 this morning. Let me just pray for a moment before we do that, that the Lord would help us as we study this scripture. Father, give us ears now to hear your word and minds to understand it. And Lord, give us hearts to love your truth and give us wills to apply it. And indeed, Father, may our whole lives, our whole bodies be given as living sacrifices, as your holy word would bring this truth now to our hearts. This we pray expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us For our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is God's word. This is, as we have said, his exceptionally surprising word, his counterintuitive word to the way that we normally think. This is an encouragement, but maybe not as we know it, usually. And we get a little glimpse of this even as we come to the opening verse. Did you notice verse 4? I wonder what you might say to persecuted Christians who are suffering for their faith. How about this for size? Brother, sister, this sounds tough, but you know, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Did he really say 
what we thought he just said. Yes, he says, stop looking at yourself. Stop isolating your problems. And look around you, says the writer. And you will see even greater suffering in the lives of others. It's really remarkable when you recall the situation that these Jewish Christians found themselves in. I mean, didn't the author know their situation? Did he not understand that most of these Christians had undergone enormous suffering? Didn't he know that they had been de-synagogued, most of them? Booted out of their local places of worship? And didn't he know that many of them had been disowned by their families? And that as a result, as well as the loss of employment to Jewish employers who didn't like this, many of them had also been dispossessed of all their earthly possessions. Didn't he know this? Well, he certainly knew these facts because he mentions them elsewhere in the letter. And yet, nevertheless, he says, as bad as your circumstances may be, they are not as bad as they could be. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've lost your worship centers. You've lost your homes. You've lost your property. But hey, you haven't lost your lives yet, he says. Martyrdom hasn't come to this community yet as it has to many others. This is quite a case study in pastoral counseling, isn't it? I dare say that few counseling manuals promote this approach when encouraging a struggling believer. You know, it's bad, your situation, but it could be worse. And yet, actually, sometimes that is what we need to hear, isn't it? Sure, at the right moment, and certainly in the right tone, and absolutely with the correctly chosen words. Sometimes we need to look at the big world around us and the big problems around us which shrink our difficulties down to size. Isn't that our tendency often? To blow our problems out of all proportion? And to imagine that somehow we are the only one in the world with cares? Or that our situation is as dire as it gets? And then we sit in the prayer meeting, and at the end of the time, Rodney or Peter get up and explain some really difficult situations. And it brings us back down to earth. Or we get an email from the Barnabas Fund and it gives us an education as to what it really means to be part of the suffering church. So I read even this week in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Azerbaijan, Christians arrested for being Christians. And that's not the worst. Thirteen dead in Laos, 14-year-old Christian boy killed for being a Christian in India. And I've got problems. Well, I do have problems. And you have problems in your life. They are not insignificant. And they are not immaterial to God. That's not what verse 4 is saying. But it is saying that often our problems may be less momentous than we imagine. As we look around us. Now, this is not enough in itself just to hear this surprising word of encouragement. 
Because we need to move forward from this. In fact, it may even be cold comfort to you to know that others are suffering worse than you are. And what we need to know is what the writer goes on now to mainly talk about. From verse 5 following, he says, not only look around you to the suffering of others, but he says, look above you. Look up, he says, to the Lord. And recognize in your hardships, in the trouble that you meet on the track, in the hardship that you meet in the race, recognize the Lord's loving discipline. This is an absolutely staggering section. It is, as I said, counterintuitive. And we're going to have to explore this and just unravel this a little bit this morning as to how this works. Now, I'm going to cover three areas as we think about this. First of all, we're going to recognize together the pitfalls of discipline. How you can mishandle your discipline. Secondly, we'll look at the proofs of discipline. What is the evidence? What does this evidence in our lives? And thirdly, we'll ponder the products of discipline. What is it that this actually produces and achieves in our experience? Let's take the first one. It's pitfalls. Because verse 5 tells us that many Christians simply aren't very good at handling discipline. Not very good at it. And in fact, says the writer, there are basically two ways that you can mishandle discipline. That you can fall off the bike, as it were. And the first, he says, is making light of discipline. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs in verse 5. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. There it is. Do not make light of his discipline. Now, how do we make light of the Lord's discipline? What does this mean? Well, the word translated make light, it means to to scorn something or to despise it, to to, to push it away, to repel it. And in this context, I think it carries the idea of being unconcerned or being apathetic about discipline. It's to brush off the Lord's discipline as nothing of all, at all, as no consequence. Now, here's how I think this works in our everyday lives. Some problem, any problem, comes into your experience and you simply see that problem as a problem. Everyone has them. Pressures. Non-Christians recognize them too. And your difficulties are just difficulties. Your irritations are just inconveniences of everyday life and everyday experience, so you think. And not for one minute do you suppose that this hardship, big or small, is the discipline of the Lord. And so you just get frustrated by it. Little annoyances. Actually, I think this is worse with the sort of lower level trials that we experience. Because you know, when we face a seismic problem, often the first thing that we do is ask, Lord, where are you in this? Lord, what are you trying to teach me in this experience? What rough edges are you trying to hone? We do that, don't we, with the big things in our life. But then we get stuck in the traffic jam on the way to the church committee meeting. And, you know, we're out there serving the Lord and we're stuck there on the bypass for 30 minutes. 
What's going on? Or we get ill just on the week when we have all those extra church commitments. What's that all about? And and we just think it, it stinks, but we don't see it as the Lord's discipline. And you see, that's exactly how you make light of the Lord's discipline. Not seeing your hardships in that way. Here's the other side to it. Making light, secondly, losing heart. Because he goes on to say, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Now, this is a very different problem. Not least because this individual recognizes the Lord's discipline in their life. They see and understand that the hardships that they go through are ordained by the Lord God himself. They understand that. The difference here, however, is that they are not apathetic. They are utterly discouraged about this fact. Why would the Lord put me through this? Why would the Lord do this to me? And maybe this is a sort of constant thing for them. You know, this is the kind of person you speak to. And they're always just holding on, brother. Under the hand of the Lord. Losing heart. And you see, what such people need to understand, what we all need to understand, is that this is a totally wrong view of discipline. God is not out to get us when he disciplines us. So that brings us to the second point, not just the pitfalls of discipline, but secondly, the proofs of discipline. For the writer goes on to explain what it is that discipline evidences, what it tells us about God. Now, just get these two things. These are remarkable proofs now. First of all, discipline proves that we are loved by God. You understand that? Discipline proves that we are loved, not hated, not disregarded, Not left alone, but loved by the Lord. And in relation to this, it's kind of connected to it, it also proves not only that we're loved by the Lord, but that we are children of God. The Lord disciplines those he loves, but it also goes on in verse 6 that he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. You having a hard time this morning, this week, you are a son. You are a daughter of God. For he goes on to explain, what son is not disciplined by his father, verse 7. And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. In fact, if you're going through hardship, he says, that's a bad thing. This shows that you're not really a child of God at all. Let me put this into real terms because it's a bit abstract. If you regularly visit the supermarket, and uh, some of you unfortunately, like me, have to, then you will have no doubt observed firsthand on numerous occasions parental discipline. Right? Crazy children sometimes crazy parents, correcting parents, you know the drill. In fact, it's a scientifically proven fact, by the way, that going to the supermarket with your children is always a bad idea. I don't know why, but as they step over the buzzer thing, something happens. Well, here is something I have never witnessed on any such occasion. Never seen this. I've never seen a member of the public 
walk up to the screaming child and tell them off. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen somebody else walking up, stepping in and saying, you know, you're in big trouble, boy. Girl. And I've never done it. I suppose you've never done it either. Now, now why? It's very obvious. Because they are not my child. And they are not, therefore, my direct responsibility. Now, if my son gets up to some antics, as he does, sneaking things into my trolley that I don't want, or my daughter tossing things out of the trolley that we do want, then we will have to have a wee word. Because they're my child, they're my responsibility, and I love my children. In fact, just try this next time parents are telling the children, well, tell them it's because I especially love you, and I'm especially responsible for you, and because you are special that I'm disciplining you. They won't accept it at all. But it is true. Do you see? Do you see that when God disciplines us, when he allows us to face hardships, he marks you out as his own. Someone said it like this, if God is not disciplining you at all, you should get worried about that fact. Because you see, you're either a son of God under his discipline, Or you're a rebel against God and you're under his wrath and his coming judgment. Listen to a quote here. This I found very helpful this week. Just to set against each other the difference between these two things. It's a a long quote, but just try and bear with what it's saying. God's punishment stems from his wrath against sin. Whereas his discipline, which is something different, stems from his love to his children. Punishment is God acting as judge. If you're not a Christian this morning. But discipline is God acting as father. Under punishment, the sinner pays for his sins. But under discipline, Christ paid for our sins. Punishment is God's demand for justice. But under discipline, justice is not in view. Rather, God intends to correct our faults and to develop holiness in us. Now, that's a very stark contrast and it leads to a very clear-cut question. Which are you under this morning? Are you under the discipline of God as a child of God or are you under his coming judgment Because you have not yet come into the kingdom of God and into the family of God. If you're not in his family this morning, and you ask how can that be the case, very simply, through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said this, he said, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 through faith in him, through trust in his death for you on the cross when he died for your sins. And you know, when that happens, when you're brought into the family of God, when you become his special child, 
What a sweet relief it is to be under his discipline, not his judgment. It's a story of a boy in Holland who used to live on a dike near one of these huge old windmills. And uh, the, the long arms of this windmill, you know, they swept close and dangerously to the ground. And so the boy's parents had repeatedly told him to stop playing near the mill. It was very dangerous for him. But despite his parents' warnings, he just loved playing in that spot and he was playing under there one day when all of a sudden he was caught up and swept into the air. And then the blows came. Thump, thump, thump. And he thought it was all over. He thought that was it. And then he looked up and he saw not the violence of a windmill, but the brazen face of his father who was disciplining him for doing something extremely dangerous under a windmill to get him into trouble. And he melted in that moment into tears, but not so much tears of pain, but Tears of relief and joy. Because he'd been spared from the mill. And he had been disciplined by his father for his good. Now, you see, if we know that latter experience, there are some tremendous benefits for us. Not just that we we know God loves us and we know we are his children, but also some other products. This is the third thing, briefly. You see, discipline produces things in our lives. It is something that is tremendously helpful and productive. In fact, discipline will teach you more, much more than pleasure will. Listen to uh, Robert Browning Hamilton. He's a poet. He puts it like this. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure, capital P, and she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, And near a word, said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Boy, many of us know that to be the case, don't we? In our experience. The most difficult, painful, agonizing experiences have been, yes, the worst, but also the best, the most productive in our lives. this, This passage gives us just Two of the reasons that discipline is productive. There are more, but look at the the first one in verse 9. A healthy respect for our father. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. He says, most of you had human fathers who disciplined you for a period, and look what happened as a result of that. You respected them for it in the long run. Now, of course, he's generalizing here. He's not saying that there's not such a thing as a bad father or even an abusive father. But he says, in the normal case, your father's disciplined you and you grew to respect them. Now, I can say that of my own father. Though I didn't appreciate the discipline when it was happening, I respect him today because of the fact that he disciplined me when I was growing up. Well, says the author, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, he says, if you respect your human father, who disciplined you as he thought best, sometimes imperfectly, how much more should you respect your heavenly father? 
Your Father who always disciplines you. Always for your good. Always in a pure and a holy way. Let me ask you, do you know of any children who respect a parent who never disciplines them? You may find children who will like a parent who lets them do whatever they want, but they will not respect that parent. God doesn't just leave us to do whatever we want whenever. He disciplines us. But this should enhance our respect and our awe for Him as our Father in heaven. Here's the second thing the writer goes on to mention. Also, he says the second product is a harvest of righteousness in our lives. No discipline, verse 11, seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Don't we know that? But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In verse 10, he says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. In other words, God's discipline produces holy character. It actually has a way of of pruning us and of smoothing off the rough edges if we respond to it correctly. There's a sense, actually, in which without the hurts, there can be no growth in holiness. Without the correction, there can be no consecration. A.W. Tozer once said that it is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt them deeply. I wonder if we've learned these principles. I wonder if we appreciate this morning just how productive God's discipline has been in our lives thus far. Well, it's been very surprising, hasn't it, this morning? Exceptionally counterintuitive. It is not what you would expect, or I expected anyway, God to say to a flagging runner slumped at the side of the road. Look around and see that in fact there is even greater suffering than you're experiencing. Get some perspective on that. And look up and see my loving hand behind your discipline. Why, this this text is, is hard medicine. But it's exceptionally helpful. It's a reminder that often we want molly cuddling, but we need challenging. We need someone to say, in the words of verses 12 and 13, this is a final surprising word, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. Stop sitting down there. Get up. Get a bit of strength back into your legs and your arms and start running again. It's ironic I should be preaching on this this week. It's been quite a week. On Tuesday we moved house. And uh, foolishly I suspected that we could manage it in one day. Or I could. And... I soon realized that wasn't going to happen, so I took Wednesday off as well and spent that day at home. And I came into the office early, took some photocopies. I thought, I need to get going in this sermon today, because usually I start on Tuesday morning. And as it turned out, there just wasn't a free minute in the day. Imagine that. So half past nine at night, finally cracked my Bible open. Quite frustrated, to be honest. Not being able to get round to doing something very important. And I'll tell you, I didn't need to read the text long to realize that I was not applying the main point of it. Which is, to endure all hardship. 
as discipline. Whatever it is, however big or however small it is. It is the hand of the Lord. It is the purpose of the Lord. And it is the love of the Lord. Which is proving to you that you are his child. And that he loves you this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, it's easy in a sense to talk about this in theory. And yet as we reflect on our experiences, maybe even throughout this week, often we've not applied this passage. And we've just thought about our little troubles as random occurrences. And we've even thought, Lord, if we're honest at times, that you're not interested in what we're going through. Lord, we thank you for the assurance of this passage that all our hardships are the occasion for your love and your discipline. Lord, would you reaffirm that in each heart here this morning of those of us who are your children. Reassure us that you're working all things for our good. And Lord, we pray that this morning you might challenge others to come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ that miracle of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask this for your own name's sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.